I've no idea what I'm going to say. Well, you, that's it. Well, me neither. Me neither. <laughs> um, <laughs> welcome to Screaming Queens, the queer horror podcast. My name is Jonathan Larkin, and I am joined today by a very, very special guest. <laughs> He's not special at all. He's not even a guest. He lives here. Introduce yourself. <laughs> I'm Morton Fennessy, or the Countess Dame Venora de Monte Cristo. There we go. There we go. And you said you hadn't rehearsed. <laughs> <laughs> so this is a special introduction that we thought we'd record because so this week will be 50th anniversary of the release of the film that we discussed on our podcast a couple of weeks ago. And um, when we discussed it on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, it was the first time that me, Martin and Stephen and Jonathan has all got back together as a group, as the regular cast. And it was great. Apart from the fact that my microphone broke and then I fixed it. And then Martin's microphone has a strange echo reverb on it, um, which actually I really liked. <laughs> it really suits it. Strange, some strange technical glitches going on. They really were. They really were. And then once we got that fixed, we realized we'd deleted the first half an hour of Martin's <laughs> feed. So we thought that we would record this little special intro today to do two things to celebrate and cash in on the 50th anniversary of the movie that we discussed and also just to explain why you might not hear martin for the first half an hour of the podcast and you might hear people talking to me and me not me me ghosting them and not responding yes. whatsoever well he does that in real life anyway just sits down and ignores you petulant petulant child um so it's actually so yeah it's 50 years since the release of the hammer film the vampire lovers and we discussed this film a couple of weeks ago and i think it's safe to say that me and martin are both fans of the film um and you'll hear us talk more about the film in depth but the film is essentially a uh tits and teeth classic from 1970 and it was the moment that hammer went for an ex-certificate rating that went for blood and boobs and lesbianism and they enlisted the fabulous Ingrid Pitt who then went on to become a horror icon off the back of the film but you'll hear all the details in, in tonight's episode but just yeah so I thought we'd, we'd do a special intro just to just to explain why you don't hear Martin actually speak until so I went through it before so you don't hear you t- chime in until we're talking about Ingrid Pitt's hair. Okay. <laughs> Which I thought was a good, appropriate time for you to yeah, come in. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. She wasn't a boobs, but, you know. Yeah, There's a lot of bosom in this film. And if you like horror with plenty, plenty, of, um, plenty of bosoms, then this is a film for you. Where would you rate the vampire lovers on on a scale of like one to ten in terms of classic horror? Um, I'd say it's a solid eight. It's not like the yeah. best horror, um, but it's good. It's very it's well worth watching. And I think at this time when things are a bit tough, you facing winter of lockdown and it's feeling a bit you we're a bit weary of all those restrictions it's a great Mm. distraction and it's very accessible to watch you can watch it on watch it for free on a very well-known known known tube for streaming 
It's yes, totally. Yeah, it's it's on there. It's in quite good quality yeah. as well. I, I was quite shocked by that. But, um, it's almost like I didn't have to buy those two Blu-rays. <laughs> 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 yes, I'm the one with two Blu-rays. I've got one Blu-ray because it's got a, a commentary track with Ingrid Pitt, and I've got another Blu-ray because it's got a commentary track with the writer and director. So yeah, that's why I own both. Um, but yeah, uh-huh. I, I love this film. It's part of the. It forms part of what came to be known as the Karnstein trilogy, and they're so vampire lovers came first and then came the really terrible lust for a vampire that came a year later and then a year after that came um twins of evil which i feel is another hammer classic that we probably need to cover at Mm. some point because it's another classic of tits and teeth it's gorgeous to look at really lush colors and um peter cushion is the lead so you know you can never go wrong with that Have you, um, speaking of lockdown, have you been enjoying any horror whilst we've been in lockdown? Um, I'm trying to think what horror I've, what horror I've watched. I have watched some. Um, lots of, I've been watching lots of stuff on Netflix so and series. So I've done that. I've, I've, I've waited my way through series three of Stranger Things, which I guess isn't, it's not horror, but, you know, it's, yeah, it's a bit spooky. Is it um, any good? I, I, I chimed. I, t- I tuned out like halfway through season two. I well, I started season three, tuned out, and then gave it um, another go. It's all right. Um, it, it might be worth watching because one episode starts with Madonna Angel. <laughs> oh, I heard about <laughs> that. Yeah, of trees. Yeah. Um, so it's very 1985. Um, I'm trying to think what else I've watched. Um, oh, I watched the um, the Sinner, which is sort of it's not horror, but it's sort of a. a apparently, there's three series, and the third series isn't oh, meant yeah. to be very good. But it's um, it, it's people who the first one's really good. It's a woman who murders somebody at random. Um, just out of the blue one day while she's having a picnic with her family. She just goes up and stabs, cuts somebody's throat. Oh, wow. And it's trying to figure out why um, she did that. And then the second series is about a boy who um, seems to have murdered somebody. And again, it's trying to figure out what's happened there. And there's some cult involvement it's it's definitely worth it's definitely worth a watch. Um, season one they sound like they might be good. They sound like they might be gory. Yeah, they are. They are yeah. for sure. Um, and um, I've watched a French series called La Mante, which is like the the Mantis, which is it sounds a bit contrived, but it's really good. It's a um, a detective is investigating crimes by a serial killer and it's a copycat serial killer but the twist is is the copycat serial the serial killer is copying um the detective's mother who was a serial killer oh wow oh that sounds great <laughs> is that like is that contemporary or is it it's contemporary yeah oh, okay it, yeah it's contemporary and it's i think it's only about eight episodes 
that's worth a watch as well, for sure. I suppose the good thing with a lot of the series on Netflix, the thriller and serial killer thrillers, is that a lot of them draw heavily on horror, don't yeah. they? So, you know, so they sort of blur the, the lines a little bit. Sure. I found that with, um, I've started watching Ratched. Um, oh, yes. yes. Which I sort of said I wouldn't do because I'm a little bit, I've got a little bit of Ryan Murphy fatigue mm. because I feel like everything is kind of style over substance and... Um, I haven't been impressed by anything since Feud, really. Yeah. But I thought I'd tune in and give it a go. And what I've enjoyed about that so far, I've only watched the first two apps. What I've enjoyed about that so far is the the score, they the use pieces I, the, of the score the, from I Psycho. The same. It, yeah. 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 I'm loving that Hitchcockian yeah. atmosphere from the, from the score. It's amazing. Yeah. They've used Psycho heavily, and then Cape Fear. I think was in was in episode two, with all of the uh, all of the lobotomies, which I thought was grisly and horrible. And um, it sort of draws on uh, The Shining as well, doesn't it? Yeah. With a lot of the design of the the sanitarium where she works and stuff. Have you so, met yeah. Sharon Stone yet? No, I'm really looking forward uh, to this. This is the main reason I'm watching it. She's amazing. Yeah. Really looking forward to it. But me and Ben have started doing the 31 Days Horror Challenge for October as oh, well. So I've been enjoying that. We're on day, I think it's day six today, but because the Bake Off's on, <laughs> we're going um, to opt for an episode of Hammer House of Horror because it's shorter. So that'll be our, our option tonight. Um, we're going to watch the episode Two Faces of Evil, which is the, the one about the do- evil doppelganger hitchhiker that terrorised me as a child. I was so oh, traumatised wow. by it. Um, so yeah, we're going to... The hitchhiker didn't terrorise me as a child. The, the episode did. <laughs> so yeah i wasn't attacked by an evil hitchhiker um so yeah so that's what we're up to um well great well we'll let people we'll let people get on with listening to the episode yeah. please do forgive some of the technical glitches throughout you'll notice i've done these little weird trims where you you can suddenly hear me and Stephen more cackling at something and you don't know what it is it's basically the reverb on martin's voice <laughs> we gleefully laugh at that um <laughs> it's the most reverb i've heard since my last Madonna concert i swear to god <laughs> Um, but yeah we look forward to it and we will be back in a couple of weeks and martin is in charge of the film choice for the next one so i'm sure that will be something extra yes. twisted and It'll perverse. Be great. fabulous okay enjoy the episode something is trying to get inside my body and you want to sleep with me give me those shoes they're mine give them back to me well a, a boy's best friend is his mother should you be folding towels somewhere snipping jock straps it is time to keep your appointment Command. It rubs the lotion on its skin or else it gets the hose again. What have you done to its eyes? I see no manhood between your legs. You're going to need death now. <laughs> the living dead. They're coming to get you, Barbara. Get away from her, you bitch. It was an asylum. And it was hell. 20 years of pure hell. The devil wins sometimes. What's that? Monsters. Hello and welcome to Screaming Queens, the queer horror podcast. My name is Jonathan Larkin and tonight we have a full cast. Ooh. We're all back. Oh my God, we've all got over our backstage fights and arguments and we're all back in the same room. Well, we're not really. We're, we're uh, online. So who am I joined by tonight? I can't point at you, so just someone chime in. Stephen. Stephen's here. <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to be first. <laughs> yes. 
I've changed during lockdown. Who is it? Who was there? Jonathan. Jonathan Butler. That's me. Hello, Jonathan. Are you okay? Yeah. <laughs> I'm okay. I'm not too bad. I love it. <laughs> I love it when we don't rehearse. It's great. How about we all anyway? <laughs> Sorry, Jonathan's deadpan response, then it just killed me off. I know, I know. It's, it's Jonathan. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. So, yes, here we are all together for the first time in ages. Um, it's been what? It must be months. It's got to be like three or four months or something. The last one we did all together. Um, it was in person, the last time we did it all together. Well, yeah, it was. Yeah, it was. It was. So we're looking at like February, probably. That's how long ago it was. So the world has changed a lot since then. Um, we've we've gone through a period of like this crazy thing happening, and then suddenly it's the new normal, and now it's like crazy thing could be about to happen again. <laughs> oh God! That's my doorbell. That's Jonathan's doorbell. <laughs> <laughs> it's just going so well. I love it. <laughs> it's brilliant. Brilliant. Should we all gossip about him while he's gone? Yeah. <laughs> I really don't like his long hair. <laughs> <laughs> Who does she think she is? <laughs> is he being murdered? <laughs> now I'm echoing. Um, a true crime podcast of it has to get some extra followers. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Sorry, I'm back. <laughs> yeah. Are you okay? We were wondering whether he might have been murdered or something and this was going to be evidence. <laughs> No, no. Just Amazon delivery. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dearie me. So anyway, let's plough in. Um, so speak to any British horror homo over the age of 35 and hammer horror will probably figure largely in their vocab. Known as the studio of the drip blood, Hammer found fame in the 50s when, having been treading water with swashbucklers and comedies, it put a very British spin on universal monsters. Introducing the world to Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee, Hammer brought low-budget, high-camp scares to the masses, with Curse of Frankenstein in 1957 and Dracula in 1958. Economical with their adaptations and panned by the critics, they were lapped up by bloodthirsty audiences. Hammer had hit the jackpot. For the next 10 years, they brought us homespun British horror, oozing with thick red blood, stiff upper lip chippiness, and the odd heaving bosom. But by the time 1970 rolled around, audiences wanted more. Night of the Living Dead ushered in new levels of graphic violence. Italian cinema was bringing swathes of nudity and blood, so Hammer had to, be, had to meet the demand. Surprisingly, Hammer went a bit queer. A new breed of vampire was born. Enter Polish stunner Ingrid Pitt. Big hair, big fangs and even bigger boobs, she came to slay. She wasn't just drinking blood, she was drinking from the fairy cup. <laughs> and no... And no man was a match for her or her harem of honeys. The male gaze could only watch from the sidelines as audiences fell victim to the vampire lovers. Come with us if you dare into a twilight world of unspeakable horror. You must die. Everybody must die. Sample, if you dare, the deadly passion of the vampire lovers. Vampire lovers, perverted creatures of the night, find their victims everywhere. The 
unsuspecting merrymakers in glittering ballrooms with their young and tender throats. <laughs> the sleeping beauties whose troubled dreams turn into real, terrifying nightmares. It was a cat! A huge cat! For God's sake, save her! <laughs> even one, there will be thousands more. Beware. Beware the cold caress, the kiss that kills. Beware the vampire lovers. So, vampire lovers, it was a first time watch for anyone? Yes. Yeah. For for both of you? For everyone? Oh, wow, amazing. Okay, let's go through it. That's so Stephen, what was your initial response? Uh, I liked it, yeah. It was fun. It was camp. Uh, I do have problems, especially little nitpicks, but just the music and the screeching of some of the girls made me want <laughs> to die. Oh, yeah. yeah. Everything was really high-pitched. But apart from that, I enjoyed it. Yeah. Great boobs. Loved it. Boobs. Bigger boobs. hair. Love that. The big hair, yeah, definitely. Uh, Jonathan Butler, what was your rea- re- initial response to it? Yeah, I liked it. Um, I think the kind of the legacy of the film kind of overshadows the film itself. Because I did, I did find parts of it, mm. and I didn't think it, it wasn't as good as I was expecting it to be, but yeah, I still enjoyed it. This one was adapted by Harry Fine, Tudor Gates, and Michael Michael Styles, with a screenplay by Tudor Gates. They were an indie company called Fantail who came to the Hammer with the idea to adapt uh, Jay Sheridan, Le Fanu's novel. And uh, the film was directed by Roy Woods Baker, and it stars Ingrid Pitt, Madeline Smith, Kate O'Mara, Peter Cushing, and George Cole. 18th century Styria, a buxom blonde vamp in a diaphanous gown drifts through a misty graveyard before being cornered by Baron von Hartog, the vampire hunter, in her mm-hmm. gothic pile. One burned buxom breast leads to a hissing fit and the temptress is beheaded before she can sink her fangs into the Baron. Cut to some years later, a magnificent ball replete with suspiciously 60s hairdos is gatecrashed by a fabulously camp woman in black known only as the Countess. In mere minutes, she manages to ditch her daughter, the voluptuous red-gowned Marcela, in the care of the very accommodating General Spielsdorf. Marcela makes a beeline, not for the many red-blooded young men in the room, but the General's daughter, Laura. As Marcela gets her feet under the table at their mansion, Laura is stricken with a terrible nightmare and becomes gravely ill. She eventually dies of a mysterious illness, and Marcela is nowhere to be found. Later that day, it would seem, in a schloss across the other side of the forest, Mr. Morton and his terminally doe-eyed daughter, Emma, find themselves with an unexpected guest when a carriage crashes outside their home. Out steps the Countess, in a terrible hurry, who leaves her daughter in the care of the Mortons, 
that daughter is none other than Marcela, now using the name Carmilla. She's got her sights set on Emma's heaving bosom, and Nightmares of a Giant Pussy heralds a new campaign of terror for clit-loving Carmilla. Will Emma meet the same fate as poor Laura? Is nobody perturbed by the weirdo in the black cloak who watches from afar? And will anybody notice that Carmilla is wearing a bobble in her hair that would never have been invented in the 19th century? <laughs> Probably not. Probably not. They're all profoundly stupid and deserve to die. So um, that is The Vampire Lovers in a nutshell. So yeah, I just think this film is an absolute hoot. It's so camp, it's so hammer, but it's actually kind of queer as well the film opens with classic hammer hammer imagery doesn't it with like a big map painted of a gothic castle um it's it's really beautiful to look at Uh, i think this is actually i think this is one of the most colorful of the hammer horrors Mm. um i think they they ramped up the the vibrance of it i love the map painting i love a nice little map painting in the beginning of the film it's classic it's lovely isn't it it's so good and i love the image of the you know the vampire emerging from the ground in a shroud um uh, and the mist rolling in the graveyards, all that sort of stuff. It's just completely, it's so, so hammer horror. It's so, it's just full of atmosphere. It did make um, me think them. Um, he's like, you know, thinking that he has to take the shroud away. And I was just like, he could just like stand on the back of it and let it walk off. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I know. I know. I mean, vampire movies, it's funny, isn't it? Vampire movies add their own little bits of mythology to suit the plot, whatever the film is that you're watching. It's always changing. There's no sort of set rule. And I think like this is the only one that I've seen that involves the whole shroud thing, where they say without the shroud, they could get no night of rest. Yeah. Um, I don't think I've ever heard that before or since this film. So Baron von Hartog, we realise, is after vengeance for the death of his sister. So that's why he's out here collecting heads. And he uh, he tracks the beautiful blonde vampire as she floats through the village. Uh, I love that village set as well. I think that's so cute, so cosy. Um, and she, so she goes and, so we get like a really nice image, don't we, of a man with very 60s hair having a quick slash outside the pub. And then, um, <laughs> and then he, he sort of does a scream and then he comes in and he's like, he's got his bare chest and the blood's running down his chest. I love all that. Um, and then she rushes back to her lair only to find she can't get it back in her coffin because he's robbed a shroud. So he lures her into the castle and, um, it, 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 it completely sets this film up. First, you've got the fact that she's revealed to be a vampire because the, the cross burns her on the breast. Yeah, <laughs> it's a great, great beginning. It's like, yeah, it's it's sort of, it's laying its stall. I was listening it with a burnt tit and then um, a decapitation straight away before the credits roll. Yeah, loved her. That's a good yeah. way to open your film. Totally. Totally, um, and then we so after the opening credits, we're at an opening with um we're at a ball, aren't we? At General von Spieldorf's mansion. <laughs> Did you enjoy the exterior shots that included that involved like a chain mail fence and a tennis court, even though it's supposed yeah. to be like the 18th century? I did wonder what that was. Um, you see that quite a few times. And yeah, any sort of exterior shot you see, there's like a chain link fence in the background that seems to be it, it, it doesn't just happen once so it was like it was a one-off mistake they keep cutting back to the same shots that include that that bit that sort of takes you out of the out of the era you know honestly i didn't even notice but now you said that that is so stupid <laughs> yeah because they filmed it at a golf club apparently um so um this is yeah so the, this is the opening ball and we get we sort of see everyone there and the countess shows up with her daughter Marcela, and she's got this uh, this sort of shtick that she uses, isn't it? Where she turns up and then says, "Oh God, I've got to run. Something awful's happened. My friend's dying. Please, can I leave my daughter to to stay with you?" 
And that's that's how they sort of inveigled their way into people's homes. Um, and straight off, we get the impression that something's not something's uh, a little bit queer with Marcella because she goes straight for the girl rather than um, one of the lads there. Yeah, because she's a the, the girl. Uh, which one is this one, Laura? Laura, Laura is yeah. the first girl. Yeah, yeah. Laura's like dancing with the boy, and she's like, "Oh, I love you," because that girl over there that, that everybody else is looking at is um can't take her eyes off you and he goes oh no she's looking at you that was lesbian <laughs> well that was lesbian and also it's kind of i think carl is a bit gay as well yeah because she says to him you're not looking at any other girl in this room and you're not interested in that, that new girl that came in and then carl's onto it straight away Carl's like she's looking at you so carl has got that knowledge he's got that gay dog okay, going on uh, yeah mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, he knows the score, basically. Um, and then, yeah, so the man in black shows up with his uh, really pale face powder thing going on, um, whispers in the countess's ear, and then that's when she sort of drops the line about her friend. My friend's dying. I need to go. I need to leave my daughter here. Um, and they fall for it, hook, line, and sinker. Um, it couldn't be any more um, vampire looking, though. Like, at least they kind of blend in. He is like, hi, I'm a vampire. <laughs> Well, he looks like he got like a really bad Christopher Lee outfit from Smithies, doesn't he? Really. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um. So yeah, so she she works away in the, with the family, and um, she becomes you know bosom buddies, so to speak, with Laura. And um, I think you know even if the sort of really ham-fisted symbolism wasn't telling you that this is about lesbians, the dialogue, it's all in the dialogue, because there's a bit where Laura even says to Carmela, uh, you're teasing me like Carl always does. <clears throat> so she's literally comparing her to her boyfriend. They confuse me. Why did they deny it? I don't understand it. This is um, like Nightmare and Elvis Street 2 again. It is, <laughs> totally, yeah. They were warned as well. I think by one of the censors, they were told that when 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 he read the script, he basically says, listen, a couple of years ago, we had the killing of Sister George come out and we had to cut five minutes from it. So if this film is overtly lesbian, then you might really come up against problems with the censors, especially in America. Um, yeah, so I think it, it was probably drummed into them to deny all knowledge. Mm. But then they let it through because they said it was, in the no- it was in the novel, wasn't it? So they were like, oh, we didn't come up with lesbianism. It was already there. Yeah. Yeah, well, they they can't even say that because when you re- watch interviews and stuff, and there's a commentary on one of the Blu-rays, they both say so. Ingrid Pitt and Roy Wood Baker, the director, say that they read the novel, and they're like, "I can't see any lesbianism in the novel." <laughs> um, Do you think they were yeah. playing it up for Ham, like just being like maybe, like oh, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, it, it's very possible. It's very possible. You need, um, that, uh, you need the so, yeah, so. reaction meme, like what? Lesbian? (laughs) (laughs) Totally, totally. So Laura is having nightmares about a giant pussy smothering the life out of her. Um, And uh, as she and... She blanket. It's like a big rug thrown over, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah. We found a rug off a set somewhere. Yeah, we'll use that, fine. Yeah. Yeah. So she, as she and Carmilla grow closer, uh, Laura grows weaker. And um, the general is clearly on to the fact that Carmilla's got something to do with it, hasn't she? Uh, isn't he? Because he's basically, when her boyfriend Carl comes to see her, he's the general basically says to him, um, you know, she she doesn't want to see anyone, only only Marcela. 
Yeah. And it's the, the way he delivers the line, you know that he knows something is afoot, basically. Yeah, and the, the doctor, by the way, is shit. He's like, <laughs> he's like, have some red meat and a bit of wine, and you'll be fine. Put some blood in her. <laughs> we see that the unhealthy bond is making uh, Laura ill, and before long, she's actually dead. And uh, what what I quite like about it, Ingrid Pitt's delivery of it all is she's got like a sort of sadness about it throughout the film. Um, you know, you know the bit where so where Laura dies and Ingrid Pitt just comes in and she just stands there and says, "You may open the curtains. This is daylight now. She is dead." And she's got this like inevitability about it, like the sadness, like she's just cursed to keep going through this all the time, keep doing this to people. So do you think she actually like does love them and then they die? Well, she doesn't have like a gleef, a gleeful like evil glint in her eyes, or she she's she always no. seems quite sad. I yeah, think. I get what you mean. And she does like it is. She's quite affectionate. She like kisses Laura on the breast and everything. So, well, she does more than kisses, doesn't she? Because there's bite marks on those titties. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Um, we get some nice gratuitous dead girl tits when they're um, examining, examining the corpse and they decide that they have to pull her top down to do it. Um, and they're so preoccupied by Laura's exposed breast that they don't notice that Carmilla literally disappears right in front of them. So then we see the Mortons, who we briefly met at the ball, uh, father and daughter. So she's Emma and um, she's perpetually doe-eyed. And they're out in the, in the woods when a carriage comes past and runs off the road and oh, uh, that carriage coming mm-hmm. off that throws one of the guards off and it's just hilarious and it, <laughs> he just flies off like a sack of shit and uh, the countess has the same sort of shtick but this time she says my brother is dying i have to make this journey but um you know i can't take my daughter with 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 me and basically the Morton step in and say oh she could stay with us so that's what she does. And then we realise it's Carmilla again. So she's not Marcella anymore. She's Carmilla. And she is working her way into the Morton's schloss. And uh, we first meet, so we first see them in like a hilarious sort of scene where Kate O'Mara is playing Mademoiselle Peridot. And she is doing, she's giving Emma her German lessons. And uh, we get a hint here of just how stupid Emma is because she's trying to get her to say, Die Augenbrau. And she says, die Augenbrau, very clearly. And then Carmela says, die Augenbrau. And Emma just says, I can't say it. <laughs> Bless her little cotton socks. Well, I think yeah. I think the actress is supposed to be sort of doing like innocent and naive, isn't she? Or she's not but, that innocent. I mean, friggin' now. You know, it made me think, you know, in the birds, there's that scene where Tippy Hedron is in the speedboat and, and just before the gull comes down and hits her, Tippy Hedron has this most vacant look on her face that I've ever seen. And basically, Madeline Smith in this film does that for 90 minutes. <laughs> she has that look on her face for 90 minutes. <laughs> uh, <Aww. laughs> um, so, yeah, we've got the German lesson. So we got a little bit of slice of life at the Morton's house. We we get to meet Mademoiselle per- Peridot, who's played by Kate Amara. As I said before, she's very feline looking, very attractive, very sexy. And she's she is supposed to be. Emma's governess. She's also supposed to be older than Camilla. <laughs> um, doesn't quite compute. Yes, yes. Well, they keep referring to it as like Emma's new young friend and the Countess keeps referring to it as, I think she's supposed to be like the same age as Emma, Emma and Laura. She's meant to be their contemporary. She's clearly 32. <laughs> she is stunning though. And she was, she's she's, she's amazing. my favourite thing in this actually. Even more she's, she's one of my favourite things in the world. She's yeah. amazing. Um, so then we get the very famous scene. So the film, 
the film, I think, isn't quite as chock full of the male gaze as you would expect. I this think it's one not. Scene is, and then the rest isn't. That, well, that's it. Yeah, so it's not quite as sort of exploitation-y as you'd expect it's going to be. But then when you get to this next scene with um with Carmilla in the bath, <laughs> it's just like it makes me blush. Yeah, her nipples are so perky <laughs> though. They are like pointed to the gods. Yeah, yeah, I know. We need to discuss Ingrid Pitt's boobies. They are just the most perfect things in the world. Fabulous. They adored. Don't you wish some handsome young man would come into your life? (laughs) No, neither do you, I hope. I'd like to see one. I wish Carl would come again. He's very handsome. Who? Carl Ebhardt. He manages General Spielsdorf's estate. Do you know the general? No. His niece was my best friend. And then she died. Oh, you chat on like an old peasant woman sometimes. Always of death and tragedy. Camilla, you are unkind. Emma, you know how it upsets me. I'm sorry. Forgive me? No. Forgive me. I shouldn't snap at you like that. You're so sensitive. Only about some things. And about you. Silly. Why about me? Because I love you. And I don't want anyone taking you away from me. Taking me away? Who do you mean? You know we'll always be friends, Carmilla. Surely you don't mean my handsome young man. Why? I do believe you're jealous. Why should I not be? Why? Because it's not the same thing. It's different. I want you to love me for all your life. There is um, some interesting comments on the... We might have watched this on YouTube. Um, some interesting comments on there that really tickled me. Like what? Um, someone posted that. I was going on 13 when my mum took me to see this in the drive-thru. I was glad we'd got the popcorn and coke before it started. I didn't think I could stand up with my pants sipped. Wow. (laughs) But I am hoping that 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 response was posted like two weeks ago. So I'm hoping (laughs) that you went to the drive-in much later and not 1970, because that would make this man 73. (laughs) Oh. (laughs) Posting <laughs> dirty comments on YouTube when I call him Coke. <laughs> good for him. 65. Well, good for him. There's nothing wrong with that. So we've got Camilla in the... So, yeah, when we talk about the male gaze, we've got Camilla in the bath. We've got Camilla getting out of the bath. We've got Camilla um, convincing Emma to strip and, and reveal her naive, innocent little girl bodice that she's wearing underneath. Um, then we have Camilla... Basically saying to her that if you wear that dress without your bodice, your dad will fancy you. Yeah. She basically says that. Yeah. Um, look at like all the men. Yes. And then we have titty bed wrestling. That was the only bit that like fully took me out for the second half. Like, wow. A <laughs> <laughs> man wrote this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, but it's still funny. It's so funny to watch. She convinces Emma to pass her a towel, but when she passes the towel, she doesn't like put it on properly. Does she just like leaves the tits hanging out? Doesn't put the towel on around her. Well, that's 
that's one of the things I love about this scene. She puts that towel around her waist like somebody was in real life. Because, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? If it's just two girls in a room together, you know, it, it's like um, if, it, if any other sort of film, it would be completely wrapped around her and she'd be, she'd be completely hidden and all that. But I don't feel like every woman does that in real life. I don't know. Yeah, that. one around right. your waist, one around your hair. Okay. Yeah, exactly. That's what Stephen does. It's out. It's out. Um, so they go down to, they go down to dinner and uh, Emma's in like virginal pastel blue and Camilla's in a slut red. Oh they look really good together. When they come out of the bedroom and they're coming down the stairs, they couldn't look any more guilty. Like we've just yeah. been finger blasting. We've just scissors <laughs> all night. Yeah. <laughs> and quite quickly, Emma's giant pussy dream start. Um oh. And this is where I'm like, you know, she's just like perpetually bemused for the whole film, that look on her face. And she's completely confused. She's terrified by the dream. And Mademoiselle Perizot, Mademoiselle Perizot explains her dream away by putting the house cat Gustav in front of a candle. So she could, it projects a shadow on the wall. And she's like, there's your giant pussy. House <laughs> uh, cat Gustav deserves like an Emmy because he was just gorgeous. Uh, uh, what kind of cat is that? He looked like a British shorter. He's gorgeous, absolutely gorgeous. He's stunning. Yeah. He's like, there's your big grey pussy. <laughs> yeah, your big, big, big. If you're gonna have one, have one like Gustav. That's what yeah. I say. Yeah. Um, there's a great line here as well. I think from Miss Mademoiselle Pardo, where she says, "The trouble with this part of the world is they have too many fairy tales." Yeah. Like that's mm. quite creepy. Um, so obviously Mr. Morton is off to Vienna on a business trip because we need to get him out of the way. So he leaves Emma at home with Carmilla and Mademoiselle Perizzo. Um And it was at this point I thought the men in this film, like even Peter Cushion, they're all really superfluous to the action. That's one of the things that makes this stand out from a lot of the other hammers is that the women do literally take front and centre for the majority of the film, the driver. So uh, there's a great scene where Carmilla is reading Emma's romance novel to her. Oh, and the, dis- uh, the disdain she shows for the sort of heteronormativity of the of the book. Yeah, this so book this bit is like so so lesbian. I I get yeah. <laughs> this, yeah. I don't think there's any other way to read that scene. No, there isn't. There isn't. With the bit where she's reading it, she says, "He showered her sweet face with manly kisses." This is a silly book. <laughs> and then there's um. Don't you wish your handsome man would come into my life? No, and I hope you need, don't either. Yeah, it's brilliant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this is also the scene. So this is also the scene where she declares her love for her, and she's sort of saying, "I own you." Basically, two minutes into the two minutes into the friendship relationship, yeah. I like um, when she insults her by saying, "You chat like an old peasant woman sometimes." Yeah, this grace. I love. Um, I love Carmilla bathed by the Hammer Horror Moon. Mm. as well she looks great whenever there's a big full moon in the sky i always say to ben oh there's a hammer horror moon tonight and that's that's this is the film where that comes from um so yeah this for me this is the most lesbian you know explicit lesbian scene in the film uh, but it's it is followed closely by the little smirk on mademoiselle perido's face when camilla gives her a peck on the cheek mm-hmm. yeah she was feeling it from the beginning yeah totally totally um, so we also see that Carmilla is a bit of a class snob. So basically she goes around and just like kills poor peasant girls. Whereas with the rich girls, she's all about like the relationship, reading poetry, holding hands, declaring her love. Oh, gotcha. 
She did just like dispose of the other girls. So are they like are they like as the smart price, whereas the rich girls are like Tesco finest. Oh, maybe yeah. Marks and Spencer's. Oh, Marks and Spencer's. One of the scenes that I find really interesting in the film is the funeral scene. You know where Cam- Carmilla and Emma are sat out in the garden, and the yeah. funeral march goes past, um, and the, the 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 procession is singing this religious hymn, and it's sort of terrifying to Carmilla, isn't it? it gives her like an anxiety attack. Um, she goes very um, deep voiced and serious for a second yeah yeah she does and what I find interesting about the characters she seems to have like this horrible fear of death mm-hmm. whenever anyone talks about death she loses her shit and, really, and, and is really upset by it and I just think well you think you should be used to it by now what with the killing everyone and being dead Carmela why do you always sit in the shade the sun is too bright for me it hurts my eyes then close them. It's glorious. You can feel the warmth penetrating. It's like life. <laughs> you talk such nonsense sometimes. in the village recently. The blacksmith's young wife died only last week. My father said, oh, you really are upset, Camilla. And I've been saying all these foolish things. Come on, let's go home. Camilla. Hold me. I beg you, hold me tight. It might link in with what I was saying before, you know, about like that she has a sadness about her, that she, she's sort of cursed to do this for the rest of her life. Well, the rest of her life, the rest of eternity. You know, she's cursed to go through this cycle of meeting women, falling in love with them, and then they die because her sustenance is their life, isn't it? Um, so it could be a case of that. So she just sort of hates to talk about it and maybe she's sort of burying her head a little bit. The thing with Carmilla, though, is, which is interesting, is um, she sort of gets reincarnated as the films go along as well. So in the sequel, she does she does actually keep coming back, but as a different actress, um, which kind of undoes it all, but that's generally what sequels do. <laughs> um, she has a great... I love the bit where she's hold to be tight and she wants to be hugged. Um, but also one of the more interesting aspects of this scene is the fact that she's got a bobble in her hair. They don't tend to go for authentic styling either, do they? They tend to be very much 1960s, early 70s, merging into Regency 18th century fashion. But everything's everything's very 60s, 70s. 
much like the scene earlier with the chainmail fence, they really focus on it as well. <laughs> they don't go, oh shit, and try and like look the other way. <laughs> it's like front and center. Um, but they were just they were knocking Emma's... the film out, weren't they? So they didn't really have time for research. Wasn't yeah. on all three of the films well, in space of two years. But this was seventy, and then yeah, two films both seventy-one. So they probably like just didn't have time. It was like, oh well, there's a bob. Carmilla's hair. It just gets bigger yeah. as the film goes long. I was thinking, does her hair get bigger as she's like sucking the blood out of people? Well, maybe. Be, be, yeah, it's a, it's the energy. It's everybody else's energy going into it. The volume of her hair. Mm. Some new vampire law. Yes, vampire. But I think that bubble was put there on purpose, you know, because. Like it's not like leaving a watch on somebody styled that hair. That wasn't just the that you left in there. Somebody yeah. put that bubble in. So I think yeah. you just didn't give a shit. They were like, we wanted to look sixties with a bubble. Fuck. <laughs> yeah, very possibly. Right, after this, Emma has another nightmare, and this is where she says that, that line that Martin mentioned before about "I feel it's fair in my mouth," which always makes me giggle. <laughs> it is yeah. funny. It's funny and repellent at the same time. Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> We yeah, get another wonder, really explicit lesbian scene. Go on. Yeah. I was going to say, I wonder what that's alluding to. And, and, and they're trying to pretend that there wasn't no lesbian overtones in this film. <laughs> they, try, they try and pretend that there wasn't lesbian overtones. And then we get this scene where we get a full-on kiss on the mouth. And then Carmela undresses Emma, mm. kisses her way down her body. And Emma has that look on her face as though, wow, there's a woman licking my pussy. Yes. Do you know what I mean? It's it's like, it's yeah, that's not lesbian in the slightest. Um, we start to see Emma's tit bites here as well. Um, and she says that the cat in her dream bit her, but then Carmilla explains it away as being from a brooch that she gave Emma, and then she gives one to Mademoiselle Perido as well to sort of placate her. Um, and as she does it, she lets it... She lets her hands linger on Mademoiselle's tits for a little bit too long as well. Yeah, I was going to say that's the only, not the only way she placates her. Yeah, that's true. Well, again, so then she seduces her. She takes, she, she gives her those come to bed eyes, and then Mademoiselle Perzo follows her into her room, and we have that scandalous moment where she takes, she says, you know, turn off the light, and she she uh, she gets her tits out in the moonlight. It's yeah. all very erotic. It's all very erotic. I was wondering so if she's that basically sort of, seduced the whole household. I was wondering if that brooch was like some sort of talisman that you know gives her influence over people. So it's when when she gives it, that's when she can like influence her, or maybe she just yeah. Or yeah, yeah, why not? <laughs> I wasn't sure if there was meant to be like a magical like horniness, or if she was just yeah. so like attractive that all the girls just prove herself. The other girls, I kind of think, might have been entranced by her, or young and naive. But I think, like, Mademoiselle Peridot struck me as, like, she was already a lesbian and she just... Oh, she's totally into it, yeah. Like, she's she, completely there. She looked like that wasn't her first time. Yeah, yeah. She <laughs> is a lesbian governess. That's that's exactly what she is. Um, uh, and then, um, so she's basically got the whole house under her control. So when Carl, who's, like, the would-be gallant knight in shining armor, comes calling, Mademoiselle Peridot turns him away. Um, and... Uh, you know, Renton the footman wants to send for the doctor, but one lingering look from Carmilla and Perezo refuses that as well. So everyone's sort of under her spell by now. They're under, they're in her thrall. 
Uh, but Renton throws a spanner in the works when he ignores her wishes and goes to the doctor anyway. And then it turns out to be the same doctor who treated Laura. So the minute he turns up, Carmilla sees him and she sort of scarpers so he doesn't see her. Um, and uh, we fall back on some uh, classic vampire lore when Mr. Renton gets some garlic flowers for Emma's room. The doctor yeah. suspects, doesn't he? So he's, yeah. he's, even though she hides, he's no fool. He, know, he knows what's going on. He puts two yeah. and two together and gets with, with uh, collaborates with Renton to, to get those garlic flowers in the bedroom and yeah, put yeah. the crucifix around her neck. And he, he's very consciously protecting her from, from vampire attacks, for sure. And poor Gretchen, the housemaid, is just doesn't know whether she's coming or going. They're like, take the flowers away, put the flowers back, take the flowers away. <laughs> poor Gretchen. She won't get any minutes in the film. <laughs> so Carmilla is absolutely livid when she sees there's like garlic flowers, there's a crucifix on sleeping Emma's chest. Um, so she, you know, flies into a rage and she chases after the doctor who's like, you know, rides his horse apparently through the woods. I love that shot. You know, it cuts to a close-up of him rides his horse and he's clearly not riding a horse. <laughs> it's really funny. Um, and she catches up to him and then we see her sort of stalking through the woods. She's clearly freezing. She's, uh, she's walking around the lake to get to him and then uh, she basically rips his throat out. Yeah. Um, the man in black... So the man in black is constantly there. Whenever she makes a kill, it cuts to him watching from above to sort of give him, uh, you know, a vibe of uh, power so we know that he's controlling it all, which I think is a real shame. I feel like it's the one thing that really lets the film down. It's like she can't just be doing it herself. There has to be a man who's pulling the strings. But he's so pointless, really, isn't he? Because he just looms over the film, but yeah, without really... You know he's the controlling influence, but you don't get a sense of the gravity of his presence or him being sort of a particularly um, dominating presence in reality. He's just the the window dressing, really, isn't he? In the book, the man in black is in the book, but he's he's very clearly a servant of Camilla. Carmilla, whereas in the film, it's just the way they shoot it. They always shoot him so he's looking down at camera, so it makes him look like he's more powerful. And I just feel I like that's a bit even, of a shame. I didn't even really get a sense of who he was. <laughs> he's just kind of yeah. And is he supposed to be like the head vampire or some count? Or uh, it's never really yeah, like. I reckon so. Yeah. Sorry, on his Wikipedia, it says that he's Dracula. Oh, he's Dracula. His personal one, he says that he's the only person to play Dracula in. Um... Oh, of course, he's in. He's in the Legends of the Seven Golden Vampires. He plays Dracula oh. in that. Yeah, he plays Dracula, in that, and he also lists this one. But I was like, well, it wasn't explicit, and it's not what his credits called. So I don't understand. No. Yeah, yeah. But that's what his um, says. <laughs> so it was around. It's around this point where we get to know more about the Carnstein's, don't we? So Mister Morton hears all about General Spieldorf's ordeal. Um, and then here's about Baron von Bartok, and then very conveniently runs into them on the road and uh, heads off to Castle Karnstein, where he hears all about this evil vampire family. And basically, Baron von Bartok went there after they killed his sister, and he went through the whole family, staking them and beheading them. But there was one grave that he never quite reached, that he never got to. And it turns out that that is the grave of Carmilla. And then there's a. Um, Dorian Gray style portrait on the wall yeah. that proves 
to Mr. Morton and General Spielsdorf that it's the same person, the same woman who killed the general's daughter and is slowly killing Mr. Morton's daughter as well. Did you recognise the eyes or something? Yeah, I reckon so. Could that, um, he couldn't have made it any more confusing with the names, though, because she's Marcella, Carmilla. And Mayor Carla. Mayor Carla. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I feel like... I know. I suppose that's realistic because you just make it close enough to your name that you know he's recognize her. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. But the thing is as well, with it being like lesbian vampire, because they used an anagram that said Malika. <laughs> 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 they, they never did. They never did. Um, I want to know there's why. There's a cracking you shot of Mamazel. Sorry, go on. Go on. No, go on. Say, how come he never, you know, oh, that grave's over there. I can't be bothered. I'll just leave one. Fine. <laughs> he never quite got there. Why did he not quite get there? It's like, oh, it's over. I know. He was tired. Yeah, maybe he was tired. He's like, oh, I don't know. I'll go. He said I was tired. I guess they can. There was a montage. <laughs> maybe he had to like get home for tipping points or something. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Um, there's a cracker shot coming up of uh, Mademoiselle Parazot in the throes of vampire thrall, seen through a keyhole. Does anyone notice her? She's like writhing on the bed, and then it pans out, and it's through the keyhole. Yeah, and it's Mister Renton's watching her. It's really good. Um, and then Carmilla needs to get into that bedroom to get to Emma. She needs to get rid of the um, garlic flowers, but pesky Gretchen won't take the flowers out, so she seduces Renton instead. And I always think it's a shame she never seduced Gretchen. I just think why not? Why not run with the theme? You know? Yeah. Well, oh, this should have been a big lesbo bye. Swingers orgy going on in that palace. Just everyone in the house. Yeah, free love, free love. Um, so Carmilla wants to take Emma off with us here. So I imagine, I imagine that she does love her more than she's loved all the others because with all the others she just let them die. Whereas she actually wants to take Emma back to her, her lair with her, doesn't she? So I think I feel like she does want to love her forever. Um. But envious, Mademoiselle Parazzo tries to stop them. So then we get to that scene, which is quite famous. Um, that scene where she kills Mademoiselle Parazzo on the on the on the steps on the stairs. Um, because this is the moment where Ingrid Pitt's false teeth fell out and landed in Case Omar's cleavage. Amazing. I read this. And they had to get one of the runners to give her his chewing gum to stick them back in, <laughs> which is gross. <laughs> Just, the way it was described, it was like he just walked over and took it out of his mouth, <laughs> not yeah. just like went, "Give me." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, you know, as Jonathan was saying before, they had no time. I hope there's a blooper reel somewhere well, with, that, with that scene oh. on a on a, a Blu-ray extra or somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so Carl arrives just in time to stop Carmilla taking Emma off with her. So we get we get the moment that everybody needs is in 1970 where the man rescues the girl mm-hmm. and uh, he uh, he throws his dagger at Carmilla to stop her, but she vanishes into thin air and instead he destroys a very nice vase. Um, so Carmilla buggers off back to Cap- Castle Karnstein, but what she doesn't realise is that the general and his mates are waiting there. Um, and this is where she's staked and beheaded. And uh, she's banished, so the evil is banished. So that's that's where the film where the film ends. What do we think of the ending? Yeah, I quite liked the, the bloody staking. The head chop off was awful. <laughs> oh well, you know, it was good for its time. Apparently they used the the sounds of a, a cabbage being being hacked. 
But I like the idea <laughs> of like holding a head up though, like to get chopped off. That was quite cool. Yeah, it just yeah. Totally. And it was quite yeah. a good replica as well. It wasn't like I mean, you could tell it was a false head, but yeah. it looked pretty. It looked pretty good actually. Only now can I see the evil in her eyes. I will do it. Praying that his daughter is still alive. I know that Laura is dead. Vampire Lovers came about because American International Productions went into partnership with Hammer and they requested a film that would push the envelope in terms of sexuality and violence. So um, that, well, that's what they got. And it was a it was actually a really big success. So it was the only Hammer film to make a million dollars in the USA wow. in the 70s. Okay. That's fair. Um, yeah, no, it, it, it did actually do really well. I was going to say, was it the only one to have Ingrid Pitt in a bath with a tits out? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Very possibly, although she did get naked in Countess Dracula the same year. Mm, the Bahama, though. She got naked in that as well. Yeah. yeah, it was, yeah. Have we watched it together, Martin? I don't know that we have. I think we keep on mentioning it to do it for the podcast. Yeah. So she got naked in that. And then, um, but that, so Countess Dracula was based on Elizabeth Bath- Bathory, uh, Bathory, um, and that's sort of, sort of, it was supposed to be a shocking, gruesome horror but it's more like a bit of a bland thriller with a bit of a historical thing thrown into it's Mm. not that it's not that great it's okay it's not that great but it didn't do very well and um they dubbed ingrid pitt's voice as well which is really strange because she's she's like you know polish she's eastern european anyway so they dubbed her voice so she wasn't very happy about that so that's why that's one of the main reasons she never came back to do the sequel to the vampire lovers Mm-hmm. Um, although she she basically says that the the main reason she didn't do the other Karnstein films is that the scripts were so bad. Yeah. Um, I don't know why you would dub her voice though, because her voice is really cool. That's it. It's her voice is great, and so she's got that gorgeous accent as well. Yeah. yeah. Um. So, I've, has anybody read the book, Carmilla? No. I've no, I've never read it. So you, um mentioned it online the other day yeah and i was very int- i've been very intrigued i haven't watched this film and looking online for what the yeah. book was like it's great it's great so carmilla um it actually predates dracula mm. so um it was published over over 25 years before dracula it was published in uh, 1872 yeah. yeah came out in 1872 and it was it was, I mean, you know, for the time at least, it was quite explicitly full of sort of lesbian overtones, really. 
quite bizarrely. Ingrid Pitt and Roy Wood Baker have both said, you know, we didn't see any lesbianism in this film. I don't know what everybody's talking about. And Roy Wood Baker says that, um, you know, he, he basically says, I read that book twice and I didn't see anything lesbian in that book. He also went as far as to say that Jay Sheridan Lefanu, as a Victorian Irishman, couldn't possibly know anything about being gay. So clearly he's never heard of Oscar Wilde, no, um, no. Who, who he references at the end of this film <laughs> with the portraits. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, so uh, just an excerpt from the novel, just to sort of counteract what they, what you know, their claims. But uh, an expert from the novel says, sometimes after an hour of apathy, my strange and beautiful companion would take my hand and hold it with a fond pressure, renewed again and again, blushing softly, gazing in my face with languid and burning eyes, and breathing so fast that her dress rose and fell with the tumultuous respiration. It was like the ardour of a lover. It embarrassed me. It was hateful and yet overpowering. And with gloating eyes, she drew me to her, and her hot lips travelled along my cheek kisses and she was whisper almost in sobs you are mine you shall be mine you and i are one forever then she threw then she had thrown herself back in her chair with her small hands over her eyes leaving me trembling so yeah that that's not lesbian apparently no it's funny how people um people like to sanitize and desexualize the past isn't it and yeah you you at the moment yeah at the moment on the bbc there were there um showing the series Harlots, which is oh, about yeah. um, 18th century Soho and um, brothels in, in the 18th century. And that's what life was, you know, that's what life was like. A prostitution was 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 prevalent and hugely, probably more visible than it is now to us. Yeah. Um, so sex was, you know, sex was there, sex was visible. It was maybe expressed in different ways, but it was there. Yeah. Completely. Yeah, they always do it, don't they? They always, you know, like when they're teaching history, they're like, they were great friends. I'm like, yeah, okay. The interesting thing, I suppose, is if you're looking back at like Victorian times that when that novel came out, they would have been, it, it, it wasn't just the fact that it was lesbianism, it was more the fact that that novel, the centre of that novel, were two, it was two women. So there yeah. were no men coming. I mean, a man comes to the rescue, obviously, at the end, because that has to happen. But if you look at like Dracula, most of it's told through Jonathan Harker and even the stuff where the stuff that's told through Mina and Lucy, it's all dominated by the men. Yeah. Um, yeah. Whereas this is literally two women. The entire thing. Yeah. Which this is two women and it's one woman talking about another woman and her love for that woman throughout, throughout the novella. So you could see why people would sort of gloss over it a little bit. They wouldn't really know what to do with that. I love the cast. Kate O'Mara obviously went on to be in Dynasty as Caress, Alexis's sister, based on Joan Collins's actual sister, Jackie Collins. She's camp classic. Peter Cushing, obviously. So Peter Cushing came in late. So basically the American market said we can't give you any funding if this film is not going to have a noticeable, you know, a notable mm. hammer British star. So Peter, that's why Peter Cushing is essentially only in about 20 minutes of the film. So he's only, he only frames it at the beginning and at the end. Um, that's where he came in. But him and Ingrid Pitt became good friends on set. So basically Peter Cushing's wife, Helen, was uh, was born in Russia. And um, when she and Ingrid met, they really hit it off. And Ingrid could speak Russian. So her and Helen wow. used to pass, note, pass notes to each other in Russian. Um, on set and when uh, Ingrid's father was coming to visit the set Peter and his wife Helen uh, made him a birthday cake 
which I think is really lovely. Oh. Um, I know, I know. So Peter Cushing, by all accounts, was a, was like a lovely guy. Everybody, nobody has ever has any bad stories to tell about him. And he was like absolutely devoted to his wife. And she died just after they made this film. Um, and he actually uh, told Ingrid Pitt that he was basically uh, waiting to die so he could be with his wife. Oh. And he, he told her that he was considering, he was considering, you know, ending it all. I don't think he was oh. serious, but he said like he, it crossed his mind and she, she's pled with him. She basically said to him, never do that, you know, live your life. Um, oh. she, yeah. It's really, really touching. Mm. Um, she, Ingrid Pitt, do we know, does anyone know any of anything of her story? No. So, <laughs> well, I love when you go, does anyone know anyone hear stories? So, so, Ingrid, so she was born in Gushka Petrov to Jewish parents in Warsaw in 1937. So, you can see where I'm going here. Mm-hmm. Um, so she was born, so basically, they were trying to get out of Germany, no, they were trying to get out of Poland and they were on a train to, to meet a boat to get to the UK when her mum went into labor. On, on the train. So they were caught trying to escape. So they were then trapped in Nazi Germany um, and ended up mother and daughter being sent to a concentration camp. So Ingrid Pitt grew up in a concentration camp. Um, they were separated from the father and her older sister. And um, so when she was like four or five, her and her mum escaped from the concentration camp with partisans and escaped into the woods and they didn't realize when they escaped that the war was over because the camp hadn't been liberated um so they were um basically in 1947 they walked from warsaw to berlin looking for her father in displaced persons camps gosh uh, he was eventually found by the red cross and they were reunited and then they, they went to live in west berlin so and then that's nothing. So then, uh, in the fifties, she was introduced to the cinema by her father, and she um, she had a short-lived career as a medical student, but she wanted to be an actress. So she eventually joined the uh, the Berthold Brecht Berliner Ensemble. So she moved to East Germany to join this ensemble. But she was apparently too vocal in her criticism of um, you know the regime, and uh, the night she was scheduled to have her stage debut. Uh, in a performance of Mother Courage and her children, she was ba- basically about to be arrested. The, the security police were coming for her because she was so, you know, outspoken against them. So she snuck out the back door and jumped into the River Spree and swam to West Berlin, <laughs> <laughs> uh, where she was rescued by an uh, American GI. And he's the one who he took her to America and they got married there. Wow. Um, yeah, yeah. So, and I'm. Um, to make a film of her life. I know, I know. So, um, yeah. So in America, she had a she had a child. She had a daughter called Stephanie, and she played. Uh, so Ingrid Pitt played Blanche Dubois in the Pasadena Playhouse production of Streetcar Named Desire. She also held down jobs as a model, a flamenco dancer, <laughs> and a cook. <laughs> and um, but the marriage broke down, and after after the divorce, she took her daughter and moved to Spain. So apparently, in Spain, she went to a bullfight where a photographer snapped a picture of her weeping for the dead bull, and the picture turned up in a local newspaper and was spotted by a film director who gave her a, gave her a job in a film, um, a starring role. So a film career followed, um, and basically over the next four years, she had small parts in loads of Spanish films. Learned to speak Russian, English, German, Italian, and French. Worked in theatre and had a small spe- non-speaking part in Doctor Shivago. 
Um, and then uh, basically she ends up in the wartime film Where Eagles Dare in 1969. And that's the part that got her noticed by Hammer. So Mr. Hammer, James Carrera saw her in that. And then and then he met her. I think she was like waitressing or something in London. And he met her at like a film premiere and basically offered her the part. He says that we've got we've got films coming up, basically meant the vampire lovers and Countess Dracula. And he says, I want you to play the lead role in both. So he gave her the big the big chance, the big break. And that's where her film career started. So yeah. <laughs> she had quite the life. How incredible. I know, I know. Well, yeah, does so, he actually could make a film about the life because everyone would be like, "Well, that's bullshit." Yeah, <laughs> I know, I know. And um, she, so she died. So she, she died. She only died uh, in two thousand and ten. She was seventy three, I think, and um, she died of heart failure on her way to a birthday party for herself. Oh, yeah, I know. I know. So Jonathan, write this script. I know, <laughs> I know. She says she had such an amazing life. She's so interesting. I love her. I think she's so talented. I think she she elevates the part. You know what I mean? I feel like she could just be tits and, <laughs> literally tits and teeth. But she's, she's full of charisma. <laughs> I'm sure she did, Jonathan. I'm sure she did for many, many straight men and a few gay ones as well. Um, so as we're saying, yeah, the so The Vampire Lovers was the first part of the trilogy. So The Vampire Lovers in 1970, then Lust for the Vampire in 71, and Twins of Evil in also 71, but some places say 72. Um, and of the three, Vampire Lovers is definitely the strongest, but Twins of Evil is, is great fun. And I think that's one we should possibly cover in future too, which that stars two Playboy Playmates who are twins as the, uh, <laughs> as the leads. And it's got an amazing scene where a woman, um, where Carmilla um, has sex and um, they, they cut to her hand wrapped around a candle, basically wanking the candle off to show what, what's going on. <laughs> <laughs> to symbolise sexual intercourse. Um, but yeah, there we go. So a, a camp, camp Hammer classic that is also very queer as well. So uh, yeah, I'm glad everyone enjoys it. It's well worth a watch, definitely. And I think it definitely Particularly because it's so it's so accessible, mm. um, and we need we need right light relief right now. Um, yeah. This is this is definitely something that can give you light relief, whether that's <laughs> <laughs> in lots of different ways. <laughs> Looking at Jonathan. <laughs> I think it is a really good example of a lesbian film, though, like a film that. Contains lesbianism, lesbianism that isn't too male gazy. I think that is a good point for for something from the seventies, especially. I'm surprised at how unexploited exploitative it is. We've seen this. It it you it, it 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 isn't really at all. It's just it's just presented very matter of factly, really, and I think. Most films in the seventies are, are far more obviously exploitative. Yeah, I think I think it's true, and I think what I love about it is that for the for the majority of the film, the two the female leads are just allowed to get on with it, and it's yeah. not they're not talking about men, they're not worried about men, they're not obsessed with men. Um, it's just basically the men get in the way at the end and chop our heads off. Yeah. <laughs> um, the, camera work, 
the camera work doesn't express that either. You and I think that probably is why a lot of seventies films maybe seem to be a bit exploitative. Is that camera work is the way that the directors and the way that they focus on um, women's bodies that seems to be superfluous. And I love that. I do. You know, it's mm-hmm. like it. You know, it. You know, it might be morally questionable, but I love those films as well. But this this film is different. Yeah. Completely agree. Yeah, John. John, like, go on. Go on, see more. Sorry, I was just going to say it. It was never like when they had moments of affection. It wasn't like there was a man there watching it. It was never that. Even there wasn't even like another character to see something and be like, hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's true. Uh, John, where would you rate this in your, um, you know, hammer, hammer experiences? Um. See, I don't know because I see I did enjoy it, but I think it's kind of the legacy of the film kind of overshadows it. I didn't. Uh, I, I, I think there are a lot better. There are a lot better Hammer films, I think. But I think it, it needs to be seen. Really, it's just it's so famous. <laughs> it's it is it's infamous, isn't it? And I feel like aesthetically, it sums up everything now that Hammer's come to be known for. Even yeah. though it isn't the best one, and even though actually this film signals the beginning of the end for Hammer, because seventy onwards, well, when they did start to sort of try and go down a more explicit route, they were losing audience the whole time. And by seventy five, it was dead. It died. Um, yeah. So the glory is were before this film. Really, That's what I, mean. I was yeah, going to say, what is the legacy? Is that it? Is is that it? The 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 vampire and horror tropes that it. it it sort of delivers is that is that its legacy yeah and the titty thing so the you know blood and boobs kind of combination yeah. that hammer is now known for back then it was sort of sniffed at so the, the from 57 from curse of frankenstein that 10 years before that that is known as the prestige do you know what i mean mm. that is known that is known as what people respect a little bit more even like the black and white thrillers like the nanny which we covered they all came yeah. out in that period and they were attract, attracting big names and big money um Whereas, so when it came to this, Hammer was starting to get a bit desperate to get a younger audience, get a more, um, you know, a horror audience who wanted things that were more explicit. So because of that, it lost a lot of the respect from the people who love what came before it. Mm. But it's only, but now when we look back at it, we love these, we love this film. We love the way this film looks and it's 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 become more of a cult as, as it's gone along, really. So even though, as I said before, it did well on the box office, it was quite, it got very sort of mixed reviews. It, I mean, and in that way, it, you it it couldn't be made now in some ways, could it? You know, or it wouldn't be quite. Um, it would probably be more politically politically correct. Yeah, maybe. Um, and we do we lose something. We come back to this time and time again, don't we? But we lose something when things are a bit too um, compliant with modern morals and, yeah. and and views and actually you know, that edge of of actually just play into people's desires and people's sexuality is is much more um, yeah. it's much more interesting yeah and also this kind of film often appeals to people who are a little bit more on the fringes as well so people who aren't trying to come across as respectable and yeah 
be seen to say to say the right things and stuff. There's a mm. great there's a great podcast I've been listening to uh, called Girls Guts and Jallo, which is uh, hosted by fabulous. Uh, she describes herself as a leather dyke fat goth, wow. and she's she's amazing. Uh, and she she talks about this film on one of her podcasts, and she the way she describes it, she talks about all of the elements that are flawed, all the elements that are of their time and would be deemed problematic. But what she, what she puts, what she considers to be more important is that it fucking turns her on. She yeah. thinks it's so sexy. And she thinks Ingrid Pitt gives a, you know, major mommy vibes, uh, you know, and, and that's, that's the base level that people should enjoy these films on. Don't, don't fucking take that's, it too seriously. That's nice that like, and I think that proof backs up what we were saying is that if it turns on a lesbian and not just straight men, then it's obviously done its thing right. Like, totally. Because normally lesbians look at lesbian porn or stuff designed by men and just think, no. Yeah. So it obviously worked. Yeah. And I agree. it, so that obviously worked as well. So. Yeah. Totally, yeah. Gave John a hard on. It made me blush. <laughs> you know, it gave Martin a wide on. <laughs> and it made Steve and um, female ejaculate. So there we go. There we go. Um, so there we go. Yeah. So I, I think we can all heartily recommend this one. So if you're, uh, if you would like to give us some feedback on the podcast, please do. It's good to be back. The four of us, even though we've had a few glitches today. But you know, what's sorry? Well, do you know what? What's a what's a what's a vampire film without some teeth and troubles? Um, <laughs> Uh, so yeah I can't wait to do the next one so please get in touch with us if you want to give us any feedback I'm on Twitter at Johnny Larkin Stephen Moore where are you? at HD99 Jonathan Butler where are you? Uh, at Cthulhu502 <laughs> and where can we find Martin? Uh, I'll be in Castle Colstein <laughs> <laughs> getting some head <laughs> getting some head amongst the garlic flowers <laughs> fantastic right <laughs> thanks boys I, we'll see you very soon see you very soon bye, bye.